Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 4. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. In this podcast episode, we'll talk about a non-Buffy episode, Angel Season 1, Episode 8, I Will Remember You, the first time Buffy crosses over into Angel and one of the most powerful Angel episodes ever. I am Lisa M. Lilly, novelist and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. You can check out my fiction, including my first in series free ebooks at lisalilly.com slash free. As to I Will Remember You, in particular, we'll talk about using seemingly unimportant details and dialogue lines to foreshadow a devastating ending, whether fate is the antagonist or is it Angel himself, a midpoint that doesn't have the major commitment or major reversal that I usually look for, but that is still so powerful and keeps the momentum going. And whether the events of this episode affect Buffy's character going forward. I'll cover that in the spoiler section. And as always, there won't be any spoilers until the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. I Will Remember You aired on November 23, 1999, immediately after the Buffy episode I covered last week, Pangs. So this was the eighth episode of Angel season one, right after the eighth episode of Buffy season four. It was directed by David Grossman and written by David Greenwalt and Janine Renshaw. As Buffy watchers, we know all that we need to know about Angel the series from last week's episode, that Cordelia is working for Angel, that Angel's friend got a vision about Buffy, so Angel went to Sunnydale and he lurked and he didn't let her know that he was there. If we didn't already know this, though, the episode does an excellent job of weaving in the exposition we need quickly and through conflict. So let's start with that opening conflict. This is there to draw the viewer into the world of the story. Angel winds an old-fashioned clock and sets it on the front of his desk facing him. He centers it, then he rolls a pencil across the desk to see if it is level. Cordelia and Doyle look at him through the interior windows from the outer office area. Doyle tells Cordelia Angel got back late last night and he seemed fine. But Cordelia is worried. She says Angel saw Buffy and tracked her for three days. So where's the scowl, the morbid gloom? The fact that it's not there means it's worse than usual. And she says, batten down the hatches, here comes Hurricane Buffy. Doyle says maybe Angel's over Buffy, and Cordelia tells him he has so much to learn. Then she panics when she sees Angel pick up a stake-like piece of wood. They rush in, tell him not to do it, but it turns out Angel's just using the stake to put it under the desk and level it. Starting with that image of the clock and showing Angel trying to get it on the desk just right, seems at this point in the episode like it was only a 
a device to show Angel feeling uptight and Cordelia worrying. But as we'll see, time is a central concept to this entire episode, and this was such a good way to introduce that without the audience knowing how important it is yet. Cordelia blames Doyle for jumping to conclusions and rushing into the office, but she points out that Angel did see Buffy. Angel tells them it wasn't a social call. He was there to protect her. He stayed out of sight, and Buffy never knew he was there. Now Cordelia is surprised and questions Angel about avoiding Buffy, and Angel says, look, Buffy's always going to be part of me, but she's human, and I'm not. And that's also never going to change. We said our goodbyes. No need to stir any of this up again. Cordelia is skeptical. She says, if my ex came to town and was all stalking me in the shadows and then left, and he didn't even say hello, I'd be. And from behind her, Buffy, who has appeared in the doorway, says, a little upset. She looks at Angel, he looks at her, and Buffy says, wouldn't you? Two minutes, 11 seconds in, and we cut to the credits. When we come back, Cordelia pretends to be surprised to see Buffy. Buffy says she came to see her father and thought she'd stop by, which, as an aside for Pangs, raises the question why she didn't go see him for Thanksgiving. Buffy asks how Cordelia is. Cordelia asks about Buffy, and Buffy says, I've been better. She looks at Angel. He looks at the floor. And Cordelia says, well, this is Doyle, and he gets visions of people in trouble. Doyle starts to say, nice to make your acquaint. And Cordelia grabs his arm, drags him out, and says, and this is us leaving you alone. Buffy accuses Angel of game-playing or tormenting her. He says he wrestled with the decision to stay out of sight, and Buffy says, which you made without me. Angel responds, I tried to do what I thought was right. This theme will return, or this conflict, between Angel and Buffy, and it's one way of foreshadowing what is to come, and it goes to the heart of the current conflict as well, where Buffy is mad at Angel for not letting her in on what was happening. He tries to tell her it was complicated, it's a long story, and Buffy says, your new sidekick had a vision, I was in it, you came to Sunnydale? So far, the whole episode has been great at using conflict to get out exposition, and that line is a terrific example of it. She goes on to tell him a lot in her life has changed. She's not in high school anymore, and she doesn't need him skulking around trying to protect her. We're nearly five minutes in. Usually before this, at about 10% through the episode, we see the story spark or inciting incident that gets the main plot rolling. You could see that as Buffy arriving in Angel's office, that would be early, only about 5% through. But you can have an early story spark. The reason I think that isn't it is because the Angel-Buffy relationship, maybe not relationship, but their reunion, as powerful as it is in this episode and as heartbreaking as it will turn out to be, is a subplot. The main plot here is Angel turning human. And that inciting incident won't happen for another few minutes. So that will be late. But I feel like the episode has plenty of momentum because we do have that combined setting off that Buffy-Angel reunion subplot happens early, 
the main plot happens a little late, and between the two, our episode keeps clipping along. For now, we're at five minutes in, and Buffy's tone softens a bit after saying that she doesn't need Angel skulking around. She goes on, unless, of course... I'm in some gigantic fight to the death, which I was last night. That was you helping me, wasn't it? In the outer office, Cordelia grabs her purse. She confirms to Doyle that Buffy is the slayer and agrees Buffy seems a little hurt, but that's how it is when Angel and Buffy are together. Doyle's not sure they should leave the office. And Cordelia says, oh, they'll be into this for a while. We still have time for a cappuccino and probably the director's cut of the Titanic. This is another time reference, subtly setting up the climax of this episode. We're at 5 minutes 30 seconds in. Angel apologizes. Buffy agrees she doesn't know what was the right thing to do when Angel came to Sunnydale, but she knows when he's around, whether she sees him or not, she feels it inside and it throws her. Angel says it throws him too, and Buffy tells him, so let's just stick to the plan. Keep our distance until a lot of time's passed. They both look really sad, and she continues... Given enough time, we should both be able to, Angel says, forget, and Buffy says, yeah. So I'm going to go start forgetting. She heads for the door. So yet another time reference. And now at about 15% through the episode, a demon bursts through the window. He has a green face, a large multifaceted ruby colored jewel in his forehead, and a sword. In the outer office near the door, Doyle pauses and he says, did you hear that? Cordelia says, oh yeah, the Buffy and Angel show. First they talk out their differences and then they punch them out. So I notice it took Cordelia and Doyle a really long time to get to the door. Cordelia was pulling Doyle toward it before that longer conversation with Buffy and Angel. And there's a couple moments like this in the episode. And at first I thought, oh, they're not paying much attention to the timing here. But I think it is part of that feeling of time being malleable. Buffy and Angel have this long conversation. Cordelia and Doyle have barely gotten a step across the office. Doyle thinks maybe they should go in and help Buffy and Angel, but Cordelia says no. She doesn't want to get her nose flattened by sticking it in where it doesn't belong. Buffy and Angel fight the demon. At some point, Angel stabs it and its green blood runs onto his hand. Eventually, it gets away. Buffy and Angel are on the floor and have one of those classic TV film moments where the couple is on the floor and there's a certain amount of sexual tension between them. But it's very quick and they both stand up and Buffy says, friend of yours? Angel responds, never saw it before. Buffy says, it was rude. We should go kill it. And Angel says, I'm free. Buffy asks if there's somewhere she can change her clothes. And then they are in the sewer tunnels tracking the demon. I mention the clothes because she's now wearing pants and a long sleeve, lightweight white sweater that looks very similar to the one she wore in the episode, The Prom, which we're going to reference in a moment because that is where Angel broke up with Buffy. Angel leads the way. He can smell the demon because it was wounded. Somewhat sarcastically, Buffy says that's a handy skill. And she also comments on his crack staff running off so they couldn't help with the research. 
They also argue about their weapons. Angel doesn't understand why Buffy brought a stake since it's not a vampire. She says because she knows how to use it and critiques his fighting axe. Tired of the bickering, she suggests they get back to the hunting because she wants to be done by dark. And Angel says, I can handle this myself. Buffy responds, you bailed me out last night. I'd like us to be even. And Angel says, we're keeping score now. Buffy looks down. Angel walks past her and chooses a tunnel to follow. They're both quiet for a few moments. Angel looks a little uneasy and Buffy asks if he's okay. He says he feels a little weird. She turns around, stops to face him and says, I know, I do too. I mean, I only came to see you so I can tell you face to face not to see me face to face anymore. And I know there's a fly in that logic ointment somewhere, but the next thing I know, we were being attacked by this mutant ninja demon thing, and then we're on the floor on top of each other, and it's just really confusing being around you. Angel responds, no, I meant I felt weird from the demon's blood. It's powerful. Buffy turns away and says, oh, okay. Let's just rewind Buffy's little outburst and pretend it never happened. She continues on down the tunnel. He follows and tells her it is confusing and it's easier when they're apart. It hurts every day, but it's easier. With her there, Angel says, it's more than confusing. It's unbearable. Buffy responds, but we have to bear, right? What else can we do? As she's saying it doesn't work when they're together, the two step closer to one another. He tells her he can't give her a life or a real future. They have to stay apart no matter what they feel in the moment. They're stepping closer still as they agree that nothing has changed. Buffy says we'd only end up having to leave each other again. Once again, this dialogue brings in exposition through conflict, highlights the conflict, and foreshadows the heartbreaking end of this episode and the resolution of both the main plot and the reunion subplot. In her Mad Men podcast, They Coined It, co-host Roberta Lipp talks about, I think it originally came from Elizabeth Gilbert, the idea that art, great art, should be surprising but inevitable. And I feel like this episode does that because there are all these moments and dialogue lines woven in early so that when we get to the end, the resolution where Angel rejects his humanity and devastates himself and Buffy, it is surprising, but it is also inevitable that he faces that choice because we're foreshadowing it so many times that it will be about time and that he makes the decision without consulting Buffy. For now, after Buffy says that about having to leave each other again, Angel says, and that's the best case scenario, which also sets up the first major plot turn or the twist on the first major plot turn because we're thinking about him possibly losing his soul. Buffy responds, boy, I was really jonesing for another heartbreaking sewer talk. That reference to the prom where they had that conversation. The tone has shifted again. We're about 11 minutes in, so we're right around one quarter of the way through, and her undertone again has become somewhat angry. He apologizes. Buffy turns back and tells him she's on the brink of something good at home now that he's, and Angel says, out of the picture. 
and tells her that's why he left. Buffy says, can we just find this thing and get this finished? They see a metal ladder up the side of the tunnel into the sunlight. Buffy says, what if the demon went up? Angel can't follow him there, but Buffy can. Angel doesn't want her going after the demon alone, another foreshadowing of what's to come and of Angel's issues. Because Buffy goes after demons all alone all the time in Sunnydale. As Angel says it, though, Buffy has already stepped onto the ladder in a shaft of sunlight. He tries to touch her arm and has to pull back because the sun burns him. A great visual of their conflict and everything keeping them apart. Buffy tells him it's best all around if they split up and she can handle it. He tells her about a place where demons go to get patched up. Maybe that's where the demon is. And he tells her to be careful and she climbs up into the light. Another great visual. At 12 minutes 42 seconds in, the demon who has been stalking Angel through the tunnel attacks. They fight. During the fight, it slashes his hand with its sword and he bleeds He vamps out, there's some more intense fighting, and Angel kills the demon. More of its blood drips onto him and into the cut on his hand, and Angel falls to his knees. We are 13 minutes, 14 seconds in, and this is the first major plot turn. Usually in novels, we see it 25% of the way through. It should come from outside the protagonist, spin the story in a new direction, and raise the stakes. In screenplays, it often, instead of 25%, comes a third of the way through. It's the end of the first act in the three-act structure. And here, it does all these things completely from outside of Angel. As we'll see, it will spin the story in a totally new direction and raise the stakes. We also get a bit of a twist because we have reminded viewers about Angel possibly losing his soul. And when he falls to his knees and cries out, the first time I watched this, I thought he was losing his soul again. A glowing light rises up from Angel. He's breathing hard. But then the twist. He hears his own heartbeat and looks shocked. And just in case we don't get it, he says, I'm alive. And we cut to a commercial. When we return, Cordelia and Doyle are back at the office. They see the wreckage, and Cordelia thinks it was all from Angel and Buffy fighting. And for a moment, she thinks the pile of dust on the floor is Angel, but then she realizes it's just dust she forgot to sweep under the rug. Angel walks in from the street looking stunned. They ask him what's wrong. And Cordelia warns Doyle not to get too close to him. But then she says, hey, if you walked in the front door from the street, you... And Angel says, yeah. And Cordelia finishes, got an umbrella. As Angel walks toward the window, Doyle tells Cordelia, no, Angel's alive. Angel explains about the demon and the blood. He wants to find out what kind of demon. And he pauses to groan because his back hurts and says everything's more. And Doyle says, more real now that you're real? 
Another couple lines that are great foreshadowing that Angel is not used to his body hurting or being so easily damaged. But as the audience, we almost don't notice that because we shift right away to the wonderful part of what Angel is experiencing because he says he has a mortal body now and he's so hungry. He dives for the office refrigerator, tries all kinds of food, shoving things in his mouth. He says he forgot how good it tasted when he was alive. And Cordelia says, yeah, they didn't even have cookie dough mint chip in your day. Angel responds, oh, I want some. He points at Doyle. Can you get that? Doyle tells him to focus. Angel tries to, but then he says now his stomach is killing him. Funny, but another foreshadowing that makes his ultimate decision both surprising and inevitable. He tells Cordelia to go find Buffy and tell Buffy that Angel killed the demon, but not what has happened to Angel. He says, not till I know what it means. Cordelia leaves looking a little worried. At 16 minutes, 38 seconds in, Doyle finds the Mora demon in a book. He says Moras are very powerful demon assassins, a soldiers of darkness kind of thing. They take out warriors for our side, like you and Buffy. He also learns they need large quantities of salt to survive and says that their veins run with the blood of eternity. And their blood has regenerative properties. As Doyle is talking, Angel sees his reflection in the window glass for the first time. And with wonder, he touches it. And he says that explains what happened to him, but not why. And Doyle says, what does it matter? It's happy fun time. But Angel wants to know what's going on. Doyle says, I don't know. I thought the only way you could be made mortal was if the powers that be stepped in. Angel says they could have done this. Angel gets the feeling Doyle isn't telling him everything, and Doyle agrees he's not. They're both on a need-to-know basis, and Angel says, I need to know about this. He wants to know if it's permanent. He wants to speak to the powers that be. We have a couple listener comments here. Roberta Lip of the Mad Men podcast, They Coined It, commented on the whole of season four, but particularly about the initiative. She said, seems like most of this season so far has been hard to nail down in terms of story structure without the full season as context. Fans do not favor this season and attribute it to Riley and the initiative, but weak individual episodes could be a bigger contributor to the meh. Roberta goes on, and based on your analysis, seems like they decided to radically change things up. My guess is as sort of a distraction from the change to college. In retrospect, that choice was too destabilizing for a season where every other norm was already broken. The viewer was not grounded. They really had a big challenge on their hands. If you just lift the old premise and drop it into college, that would have been thin. And that made me think about the entire metaphor for the first three seasons of High School is Hell. And I hope to revisit that at the end of season four. What is our season-long metaphor? Because obviously High School is Hell doesn't work when you're in college. As I responded to Roberta on Twitter, High School, most of us 
are more or less stuck there. So that idea of high school is hell and you're stuck in it, that makes a lot of sense. It resonates with a lot of people. But college is, for those people who are there, a choice they made. They may have been pressured by family or outside forces, but they don't have to be there in the same way you do for most of high school. It's a different experience. So what do you do when your main show metaphor is gone? So thank you so much, Roberta, as always, for your insights. There's also a comment from Elaine on the Buffy and the Art of Story Facebook page, and she says, I love your podcast. It's so thoughtful and focused, and you clearly prepare and edit. And she goes on to say she tried other podcasts, but there's too much about just what the hosts love or don't love, uh, and they don't break down a plot structure or have real insights on characters, so thank you. And thank you to you, Elaine. I really appreciate your comment. It's good to know that my delving into the story elements and the character aspects is something that you are appreciating and enjoying. If you would like to comment on Buffy and the Art of Story and join the conversation, you can do so on Twitter. Look for me at Lisa M. Lily, hashtag Buffy Story. Go to the Buffy and the Art of Story Facebook page. Head over to my website, lisalily.com slash Buffy Story. I also started a Buffy in the Art of Story Pinterest page. Not sure how much I will do with that page other than pinning the episodes, but it's always good to have a reason to look at more Buffy and Angel images. Doyle tells him it's not that simple. The powers don't live in this reality, and they have to be approached through dangerous channels. Angel tells him to start approaching. We're at 17 minutes, 42 seconds in, and Doyle says, maybe we could try the oracles, but hey, if they turn you into a toad, don't say I didn't warn you. We cut to an underground stone chamber with a marble archway that is blocked by what looks like a sheet of marble. There is writing on the archway. Angel translates saying, the gateway for lost souls is under the post office. Doyle sprinkles some powder in a font at the center of the room, says an incantation and lights a fire. The doorway opens with a flash of light and Angel steps through. We're at 18 minutes, 36 seconds in, so about three, four minutes from the midpoint of the episode. The oracles look like a man and a woman. They wear dark togas. Their skin is gold. The male one calls Angel a lower being, but both of them are unhappy that Angel brought no offering. He takes off his watch. The female oracle puts out her hand, and it flies to her, and she says, I like time. There's so little and so much of it. She is stating one of the themes of this episode. And again, it happens almost without us noticing. The male scoffs when Angel asks if the powers that be made him human. Did Angel save humanity, avert the apocalypse? The female says, you faced a mora demon. Life goes on. They confirm he's not poisoned or under a spell, that from now on he'll live and die as human with all the attendant pains and pleasures. The male says, that which we serve is no longer that which you serve. You are released from your fealty. They turn their backs, walk toward a tunnel, and at 19 minutes, 48 seconds in, Angel says, that's it, I'm free. 
The female waves her hand. An angel is thrown out. Doyle catches him. He thinks Angel didn't get in to see the oracles at all, as no time has passed for him. Angel is confused, and Doyle says, look at your watch. Angel responds, I can't do that, Doyle. Next time, remind me to bring a gift. Almost as an aside, we establish that time is different for the oracles than in the human world. Angel tells Doyle it's real. Angel is free, but it's overwhelming. A whole life is spread out before him. And Doyle says, so the question is, what do you want? So far, we have had an almost constant escalation of conflict. And that is part of why, though the type of commitment I usually look for at the midpoint of the episode, the protagonist throwing caution to the wind, committing all into the quest, doesn't come until later. The episode has so much momentum anyway. And part of it is we are very close to halfway at 20 minutes, 37 seconds in, and we get an emotional moment, almost a catharsis for the audience for all the time that Buffy and Angel have been separated. And that too makes the episode so strong and makes the middle very strong, though the plot point I usually look for there is a bit later. We cut to a beach and Buffy is walking towards the water. We see her from behind. The look of the scene reminds me of the Buffy season two pilot, Anne, where Buffy is standing on a beach An angel comes up behind her and tells her he'll be with her forever, but it is a dream. Now Buffy senses something and turns around. Angel strides under an archway covered with vines and leaves and into the sun. Buffy looks puzzled at first. He looks very serious and intent. He reaches her and they kiss. The Buffy Angel theme music plays and we cut to a commercial. So this amazing hook. It feels like it could be that midpoint commitment because Angel now, after hesitating, wanting to be sure what will happen, has made this choice, this commitment. But there is something greater coming. 21 minutes, 38 seconds in, we close up on that clock on Angel's desk. It seems like it's just an establishing shot to let us know where we are when the scene changes. But it is another detail weaving into that theme of time, but also into foreshadowing that conclusion of the episode. Cordelia is in the outer office, picking at a plant she claims was thriving only this morning. And she says, I'm telling you, where she leads, dark forces follow. Doyle says, Buffy gave it mites. Cordelia says, how else do you explain it? And Doyle responds, jealousy. Cordelia scoffs and tells him jealous or not, things are about to get terrible. Angel and Buffy have been down in his apartment for over two hours. Doyle says, don't they deserve a little happiness? And Cordelia tells him she needs to explain the lore and says, they suffer, they fight, that's business as usual. They get groiny with one another, the world as we know it falls apart. These lines are telling the audience what's to come. And also setting up that Angel is about to make that major commitment. Doyle says Cordelia can't be sure that he and Buffy are, and Cordelia says, oh please, 
They've got the forbidden love of all time. They've been apart for months. Now he's suddenly human. I'm sure they're down there just having tea and crackers. We cut to Angel pouring tea for Buffy. They sit opposite each other at the long ends of his kitchen table, drinking tea, but Buffy turns down any more of it. We're at 22 minutes, 50 seconds in, and Angel says, I'm really sorry I kissed you like that. Buffy says, you are? Angel clarifies, not for the kiss itself. And Buffy responds, good, because as far as kisses go, I thought it was well above average. This conversation doesn't quite fit with Cordelia saying that they have been down there for over two hours. It feels more like the first part of their conversation. And this is another example. I thought this was here just because we wanted to have that cut with Cordelia saying, oh, sure, they're down there having tea and crackers. But now I think this is another way of playing with how time is moving in this episode with giving that feel almost of otherworldliness or of Buffy and Angel being outside of time. At 23 minutes, in Angel says about the kiss that it was incredible, but he says they might be asking for trouble rushing into things. Buffy grabs her tea mug as he talks, holds it in both hands, looking unhappy, and they talk about how do they know the oracles really speak for the powers, or there could be another loophole. And Angel starts saying, well, Buffy's still the slayer. Angel's not sure what he is, and it wouldn't be fair to wedge himself into her Sunnydale life. She just started college. My heart breaks for Buffy. It feels like excuses not to be with her, and Buffy clearly feels that way. She kind of rolls her eyes, looks to one side, and sighs. He goes on that if Buffy had to worry about him when she was slaying, she might not be as focused. And Buffy finally says, are you going to pull out a pie chart on me now? Because I get it. It's not necessary. Angel moves to a chair closer to Buffy, and she looks away as he tells her he's not saying he doesn't want her, just that it's worth the wait to know it's right. And Angel says, I need to be sure you won't get hurt again. Another echo of the prom. He was breaking up with her because he couldn't give her the future or the normal life he was sure she'd want. And he was doing it to protect her after he had that dream about her bursting into flames if he married her. All of this, as with earlier scenes, it is such an intense conflict between them right now, and it encompasses everything that is to come, though we don't realize it, including when he talks about Buffy possibly being distracted if she had to worry about him. And now we'll see Buffy's reaction. First, she says, you know, it's a good thing I didn't fantasize about you turning human only about 10 zillion times. She gets up and walks over to the kitchen counter, her back to him, and says, because today would have been a real letdown. He says nothing for a moment. Buffy takes a breath, turns around, looking calmer, and asks how the mature plan goes. Does he call her? Does she call him? Angel joins her at the counter and says, we stay in touch, just not. And Buffy says, literally. She says okay, starts to walk away, saying that she better. Angel cuts in, remove the temptation. 
Buffy turns around and she puts her hand lightly on his, which is resting on the stove. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I have to think the stove is not an accidental metaphor. The idea that you touch the stove, you touch the fire, and you get burned. At 25 minutes, 15 seconds in, they both look at their hands, then lift them while they are still touching and embrace each other and kiss. Angel sweeps everything off the table. They kiss kiss there on top of it and we fade to the sun setting. This was a few minutes past the midpoint, but it is that protagonist throwing caution to the wind, which is emphasized by everything Cordelia said and everything Buffy and Angel just said. Angel has fully committed to being with Buffy. In the next scene, Angel is at the refrigerator. He's naked. Buffy's voice calls to him from the bedroom and peanut butter, preferably crunchy. In bed, they feed each other chocolate and peanut butter and ice cream. Buffy looks so happy and says, this is a dream. You're human for like a minute and already there's cookie dough fudge mint chip in the fridge. He asks why she never told him about peanut butter and chocolate combined and she says she figured it would be cruel to tell him when he couldn't appreciate it. She also says she's over being mature. That time that he was in the kitchen was enough time apart. An angel smiles. This has to be the most we have ever seen Angel smile and says too much. He drips ice cream on his bare chest by mistake and says that mortal coordination leaves something to be desired. Buffy tells him he's wrong, it's just right, and licks the ice cream away. A great metaphor for the entire conflict here, the pains and pleasures of being human as the oracle said. Buffy and Angel laugh, hold each other, and kiss. And we cut to Cordelia saying, well, this is all working out nicely. I'm out of a job. She and Doyle are drinking at a bar. Doyle is happy for Angel and for himself if it means he's off the hook with the powers that be. Cordelia puts her head on her arm. Oh God, what am I going to do? I'm good for exactly two things, international superstardom or helping a vampire with a soul to rid the world of evil. That makes for a short but colorful resume. Doyle's glad whatever else happens, he'll be rid of the bone-crushing, head-wrenching, mind-numbing visions. So of course one hits him. It's of one of the Mora demons and he tells Cordelia, we got trouble. At 28 minutes in, we cut to Buffy and Angel in bed. Buffy tells him, I'm so glad we didn't logic ourselves out of this. They agree they'll make it work. Buffy says she's so sleepy, but she still wants. And Angel says, what? You couldn't possibly. I mean, not that I wouldn't. She tells him, no, she's spent pleasantly numb, but she wants to stay awake. Quote, so this day can keep happening. Close quote. Angel tells her it's late. We'll make another one just like it tomorrow, which goes to that surprising and inevitable idea. I mean, this is how you make that happen. Not knowing what's to come, Buffy sighs happily and says, Angel, this is the first time I've ever really felt this way. And Angel says, what way? And Buffy answers, just like I've always wanted to, like a normal girl falling asleep in the arms of her normal boyfriend. It's perfect. Angel kisses her hair as she drifts to sleep. And in a moment, he'll choose not to wake her up. And that always bothered me. I felt like it was because Angel was being overprotective, which we will see later. And I think there is a little of that there, but I didn't quite buy it because they have fought together so often. But maybe it is he is reluctant to wake her up 
because she finally falls asleep for the first time, feeling like, she says, a normal girl in the arms of her normal boyfriend, and it's perfect. And I think what he can't stand is to interrupt it with what their lives really are. At 29 minutes, 43 seconds in, while Buffy is asleep, Angel hears Doyle come in. Doyle has run down the stairs. He says the Mora demon didn't only regenerate Angel, it regenerated itself. He saw it in a vision in the tunnel where Angel fought it and then in a factory. So this too was so nicely set up because Doyle said that about its veins run with the blood of eternity. So it makes perfect sense that it comes back and it doesn't feel artificial. Doyle also says he thought he tasted salt and Angel remembers the demon needs that to live. Angel says he'll have to kill it again. And when Doyle reminds him that he's human now and the powers that be released him, Angel says, you want to let that thing roam free? And this tells us so much about Angel and what he'll do later, that he can't abandon his mission. It also is part of what makes me struggle with the antagonist here. In the demon subplot, the demon is obviously the antagonist, but that is almost a side issue to the main plot here, which is Angel struggling with what humanity means to him with the option to be human. Is the antagonist in that plot fate? Because the powers that be could be seen as fate. And they still send Doyle this vision, even though Angel is human. Something happened that they didn't expect and didn't control. And now they are reaching in to try to put things on track. At the same time, Angel's immediate response of I have to kill it again suggests the antagonist is Angel himself or at least his need to have this mission or his desire to be a warrior in this fight. If you are finding the story structure I talk about here helpful, you may want to download the free story structure worksheets. You can find those at the link in the show notes or on writingasasecondcareer.com. Look for the menu item, Help With Your Story. Angel tells Doyle there's a saline plant in Redondo. They'll start there. And Doyle says, I think maybe we ought to bring someone a little supernatural. And they look at Buffy sleeping and he says, don't you want to wake the girl? And Angel says, not for the world. So we could see this as the three-quarter turn, that last major plot point that arises from the midpoint and spins the story in yet another new direction. But there is a greater turn to come. At 30 minutes, 55 seconds in, we're outside the factory. Doyle tells Angel, the demon will not just come back. It will come back stronger. And again, he wants to go get Buffy. Angel says if it's going to work with Buffy, Angel has to be able to do these things on his own. He can't risk her life every time a minion of hell shows up. More evidence for the idea that the antagonist is Angel, because really, Angel, Buffy's whole gig is fighting the minions of hell. That's what she does. 
does. I feel like it is more that Angel is not willing to be a sidekick. And maybe that's why Buffy, in her line summing up what happened, says your sidekick had a vision. Doyle tells him, the book says, to kill the Mora demon, quote, one must bring darkness to a thousand eyes, close quote. They come across some slaughtered humans and Angel staggers. Doyle tells him that it's never an easy thing to see. Angel responds that he's going to kill this thing. Doyle says, just remember, it's brutal, deadly, and, and he looks up and says, here. At 31 minutes, 56 seconds in, the demon dives down onto Angel and Doyle. Angel sword fights with it. Doyle joins in, but gets knocked out pretty quickly. Angel still has his fighting skills, and he keeps getting up again, but each time he's knocked down, we can see that he is hurt more, and he starts staggering away from the demon. We are now at 32 minutes, 30 seconds in, so we are getting well past that three-quarter point in the episode but we are almost to what I see as that last major plot turn. Cordelia in the office is putting post-it notes on different things. Buffy walks in. Cordelia holds up an axe and says, is this antique? Buffy says, Byzantine. And Cordelia says, hmm. Buffy asks her where Angel is. Cordelia shrugs and tells Buffy she decided not to feel sorry for herself. She's taking matters into her own hands and organizing a going out of business sale. Buffy asks, asks again where Angel went, and Cordelia very dramatically says she's in real pain and continues, has it even occurred to you to think about how this whole turning human thing might affect me? Buffy is not impressed. She says, regrettably, no. Cordelia keeps stalling, and Buffy finally says, if Cordelia knows where Angel is, just tell her. Cordelia sighs and says, he told me not to tell you. And Buffy finally says, Cordelia, what are we in second grade here? Tell me. And Cordelia responds, oh, you want to talk about being mature? Maybe it's time you grew up and realized that you can't have everything. You can't have Angel and save the world. And anyway, it's your fault that he went to fight that thing by himself without, and she pauses, realizing she has said too much. And Buffy says, what thing? I see this as the three-quarter turn, the last major plot turn, because this is when Buffy finds out about the demon. If it hadn't happened, there might have been a different ending. It's also interesting that this theme of maturity returns. We had Buffy and Angel talk about it twice. First, when Buffy asked about the mature plan, and then when she said she was over being mature. And now we have Cordelia linking Buffy wanting to be with Angel with a lack of maturity, that Buffy has to realize that she can't have everything. We cut to Angel fighting the demon, or more accurately, trying to get away as it keeps fighting him and going after him. They fall through to an underground area, and the demon puts its foot on Angel's neck and says, the end of days has begun and can't be stopped. For any one of us that falls, ten shall rise. The demon lifts his sword, about to bring it down on Angel, but Buffy jumps in from above and grabs the sword. She says, you hurt my boyfriend. At first, Buffy does well in the fight, but the demon gets the upper hand and throws her against the wall. Then he grabs her by the throat, turns her so she's facing Angel, and says, together, you were powerful, alone, you are dead. Angel grabs some salt from the ground, and the demon says to Buffy, what do you think of the great warrior now? Angel stands and runs 
toward the demon and says, a little bland needs salt. He flings the salt in the demon's eyes. The demon cringes and drops Buffy. But it doesn't take too much more fighting before Angel is on the ground again. This line from the demon, what do you think of the great warrior now, also hints at this choice Angel is going to make and adds to the idea that maybe Angel is also the antagonist here. As Buffy and the demon fight, Angel sees the light glinting off that multifaceted jewel in the demon's head and says to himself, a thousand eyes. Buffy is fighting the demon face to face and Angel yells at her that she has to smash the jewel. So this is very much the role that Xander or Willow or Giles might take, but she is the one who prevails. She grabs a ball on a chain, swings it around, and flings it at the demon, hitting his head and breaking the jewel. Light shoots out of him in all directions, and he disintegrates. Buffy runs to Angel, who is on the ground in terrible pain. This is so telling if you look at it in the context of pangs. Last week, when I talked about pangs, I commented on how Angel's presence in the episode seems almost unnecessary. Yes, he helps Buffy, but it's unclear that she couldn't have prevailed without him, and she is the one who kills Hoos. And I said, it's her show. We don't want Angel to sweep in and save the day. And yet here is Buffy in Angel's show coming in and saving the day underscoring the conflict here, but also that this is a subplot. Buffy is holding Angel and she tells him he's all right. That's all that matters. It's over and they're together. And she lets her head rest on his shoulder as he's lying in her lap. So that was the climax of the subplot involving the demon. But our main plot, which is Angel dealing with being turned human, is not finished. We also have a Buffy-Angel reunion subplot. In the main plot, I see the climax as the next scene. So this is where the protagonist and antagonist come face to face and finally resolve the conflict. So whether we see the antagonist as fate or destiny or Angel himself and his need to be a champion, the next scene is that resolution. We cut to the oracles. Angel is there once more. The male says, you again. Angel tells them the more a demon said the end of days had begun, that soldiers of darkness were coming, and he needs to know if it was true. And the male responds, as far as such things can be told. Angel says, what happens to the slayer when these soldiers come? The female oracle responds, what happens to all mortal beings, albeit sooner in her case? Angel says, she'll die. I'm here to beg for her life. But the male says, it is not our place to grant life and death. The two oracles turn away and the angel says, then I ask you to take mine back. Look, I can't protect her or anyone this way, not as a man. The female turns back to him and says, you're asking to be what you were, a demon with a soul, because of the slayer. And the male says, oh, this is a matter of love. It does not concern us. But Angel argues, the Mora demon came to take a warrior from your cause. It succeeded. I'm no good to you like this. I know you have the power to make this right please. So here's my question. Is this a matter of love? Angel says he can't protect Buffy. 
And he is afraid she'll die, but he also knows from season one in Buffy that prophecies can be subverted. We don't know if that is true in this world, but the male's comment, as much as such things can be told, suggests it. So is Angel's motive that Buffy will die, or is that just the reason that he gives? The male sounds a bit kinder now, but he says, what is done cannot be undone. But the female oracle says, what is not yet done can be avoided. He tells her temporal folds are not to indulge the whims of lower beings. And the female says, you are wrong. This one is willing to sacrifice every drop of human happiness and love he's ever known for another. He is not a lower being. I feel like this line tells us what the episode wants us to believe about why Angel made his choice, that it is about love for Buffy, and that is consistent with his making the same type of decision in the prom. The oracles tell him they can swallow the day as if it never happened. 24 hours from the moment the demon first attacked. Angel says, then none of this ever happened. Buffy and I, but what'll stop us from doing the exact same thing? And the female says, you, you alone will carry the memory of this day. Can you carry that burden? We don't see his decision. That is the end of our climax. So the the last moment is left to our imagination, which is so powerful. Now we are in falling action where we tie up loose ends and resolve the subplots. So here, part of it will be finding out Angel's decision and will also resolve the Buffy Angel reunion subplot. And this has to be the most emotional and powerful subplot resolution that we have seen in all of Buffy. And it calls back to the end of season two and that heartbreaking moment between Angel and Buffy. So we cut to a clock on the wall. The second hand is ticking. We hear it ticking. It's almost nine o'clock. Buffy paces. Angel comes downstairs. The look on his face worries her, but he tells her nothing happened and then admits that he went to see the Oracle. So he didn't even tell her he was going to see them and that he asked them to turn him back. And she says, what? Why? Angel responds, because more than ever, I know how much I love you. He goes on, and if I stay mortal, one of us will end up dead, maybe both of us. He tells her the Morris said more will come. Buffy says more always come and argues that it's her problem now, but he won't let her fight and maybe die alone and says, if anything, he's a liability to her. You take chances to protect me and it's not just bad for you, it's bad for the people we were meant to help. And my question is, did Buffy take chances just to protect Angel? She would have fought the demon either way. Maybe she would have done a little more research first. But this is no more than she would do for Xander or Willow. And Buffy says, so what? You just took 24 hours to weigh the ups and downs of being a regular Joe and decided it was more fun to be a superhero? Tears are running down her face. Angel says, you know that's not it. How can we be together if the cost is your life? 
life or the lives of others. And the Buffy Angel theme plays. Angel holds her and says he couldn't tell her he was going to see the oracles. He wasn't sure he could do it if he woke up with her one more morning. She is still crying, but she says she understands. He explains about the oracles taking back the day, and Buffy says, when? And he tells her another minute. She says, a minute? No, no, it's not enough time. And Angel says, we don't have a choice it's done. Buffy says, how am I supposed to go on with my life knowing what we had, what we could have had? He tells her she won't know. It never happened. And she says it did. She knows it did. They kiss. She turns and sees there are only seconds left and says, oh God, it's not enough time. Angel whispers and please and holds her and Buffy says, I'll never forget. And she repeats that until there's a flash, 42 minutes, 18 seconds in. Angel squeezes his eyes shut and opens them and he's back in his office and Buffy is saying, so then let's just stick to the plan. Keep our distance until a lot of time's passed. Given enough time, we should both be able to, and Angel says, forget. And it's a different inflection when he says it this time. He is whispering and he looks odd. And Buffy says, yeah, so I'm going to go start forgetting. The demon bursts in. Angel kills it quickly, shattering the jewel. And Buffy says, that was unreal. How did you know how to kill it? Angel responds, it's a Mora demon. I, um, I've had a lot of time to catch up on my reading. Buffy nods and says, yeah, okay. So I guess we've covered it, right? Angel says, we did. Buffy says, that's all there really is to say. Angel takes a breath, glances at the floor where the clock from the desk is lying there, shattered. And he says, yeah. Buffy has already walked out, and to himself, he says, that's it. And we go to credits. I talked in the bonus episode for patrons on Angel Season 1, Episode 1, about the mission statement of Angel, the series. Though this is Episode 8, I think this is also key to the mission statement because here Angel chooses to be a champion. Yes, he chose it in flashbacks when he chose to help Buffy, and then in the first episode of Angel. Here, though, he is offered something that he has wanted to so much to not just have a soul, but be human and to be with Buffy. He has truly committed to being a champion. I said last week, I see this as a Buffy episode, but you could watch all the rest of Buffy without watching this episode because we have this reset in the end that Buffy doesn't remember. I do think there might be some effect, though, and I will talk about that in our foreshadowing and spoiler section, which is next. If you are not sticking around for that, thank you so much for listening and a special thank you to patrons who support the show. I hope you will come back next next Monday for Something Blue, where a grieving Willow's will is done and her friends suffer the consequences.
And we are back for foreshadowing and spoilers. One of the things that is challenging about this episode for Angel the series is I don't think the Mora demons ever come back, and I'm not sure the Soldiers of Darkness threat materializes. There is a lot more that is foreshadowed here for Angel the series, but since this is a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast, I'll shift over to Buffy. This episode foreshadows some of the Riley-Buffy relationship issues. I talked in a previous episode in spoilers about my view that a lot of the problems between Buffy and Riley are because Riley does not feel like her equal. As this initiative soldier, he protects people and he can't protect Buffy. She is much stronger than him. And while he can help her fight, once he loses some of the superpowers he got through the initiative, he is less effective at that. And he more and more struggles with being physically weaker and also needs Buffy to lean on him emotionally. This issue with Angel foreshadows that. No, Angel doesn't need Buffy to lean on him, but he clearly has a a struggle with wanting to be able to protect Buffy or at least be in the fight with her in a way that he can't be if he's human. And that does foreshadow Riley's issue. And so I have to ask, there are other serious issues with Spike, definitely, and I will talk about them when we get there. But of the love interests Buffy has, is Spike the only one who doesn't feel this need to try to protect Buffy? who is comfortable with Buffy being stronger than he is. As far as whether Buffy remembers any of this episode, she she definitely doesn't remember it consciously, yet I do think it affects her. It's likely part of why she is so hesitant with Riley. We'll see when she finds out he is one of those military guys and he is also fighting the forces of evil. She absolutely wants nothing to do with that. And it's such a strong reaction against it that I feel like on some level, she is responding to the terrible pain, not just of how things happen with Angel in her memory, but also the pain of this loss that she cannot consciously remember. Also, when she comes again to Angel and she sees Angel holding Faith, her reaction to that has always felt off to me because in the Faith episodes in Buffy season four, Buffy comes to have an understanding of faith. She literally walks in Faith's shoes. Buffy is angry when she finds out Faith had sex with Riley while in Buffy's body, but I don't think that completely undercuts how much Buffy learned about what it was like to be Faith. Yet when she gets to Angel, she acts as if that part never happened. Rewatching this episode, I think now that it is partly that Buffy seeing Angel comforting Faith, holding Faith, it looks potentially romantic. She cannot have that with Angel. And the idea that Faith can in whatever form is so distressing. 
So that is it for foreshadowing and for this episode. Thank you once again for listening, and I hope you'll come back next Monday for Something Blue, where Willow unknowingly casts a spell that puts all her friends in danger. You can find my fiction and back episodes of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.com. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2021. All rights reserved.